You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Remember, God comes to him, visits him supernaturally, and there's a conversation that unfolds about Sodom, and, and Abram is dialoguing with God and, and, and interceding for the people in Sodom for them to be spared. That, that's on the heels of this event. Because what we find here at the beginning of chapter 20, from there, Abram journeyed. From where? Abram was just standing on that hilltop looking out at the destruction of Sodom. So, so we're not talking about a big gap here. Remember, we've said some of these chapters, there's, there's decades in between the events that take place in this chapter and then the very next chapter. That's not the case here between 19 and 20. Abraham and Sarah are going to have a baby within the year. So we're talking weeks, maybe months at the most between his interaction with God and this event here in chapter 20. He's at a high point spiritually when he falls back into this old sin of his. If the chapter was taken as an isolated story, there might would be some confusion as to who the actual true believer here in this story. Um, if we just were to take this chapter out, Abimelech seems to be the one who has the faith and the promises of God playing out in his life. Abraham seems to be acting contrary to what we would expect here. And then there's a big question that, that unfortunately is not answered for us, and that's why would Abraham leave Hebron? Why, why would he leave where he was already? We know that he's journeyed around and he sets up his tents and, he, and he's moving around the promised land, but he had been in his previous location 20, 20 plus years. So, so it's not that he was constantly moving around. We're not told why he moves. Uh, we're just told that he does move. And according to Abraham, he moves into enemy territory. As we're going to see, he self-confesses, I didn't think very highly of you people. You people are evil. Um, And so that kind of goes back to our thinking again. We criticize Lot for moving to Sodom. Abraham seemingly does something very similar here. He moves into a territory where he says, the people here don't fear God. Um, And so we're going to have to lie and manipulate in order to protect ourselves. We're not told why he leaves. We're, we're, we're certainly not told that God prompted him to leave. We're not told that it was necessarily sin for him to leave. But we are left to question, why would he leave after being where he was for 20 years? Why would he then leave and go to this enemy territory? Regardless of the reason, we're going to see that it does not, uh, it does not result well for his family. Uh, but by God's grace, he is saved out of the situation. As we look through this chapter, we start by looking at Abraham's distrust. We start by looking at Abraham's distrust. It says that he moves and he says in verse 2, And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. So this begins to play out. They get there and, and they begin to, uh, to, to settle in. And somehow it, it comes up as to who Sarah is in relationship to Abraham. And Abraham has made arrangements with her, as he had previously done in Egypt, for it to be told to those that might ask that she is his sister. Abraham's distrust. First of all, we see that Abraham doubts God's promise of a child. See, this decision and this resorting back to his old behavior is motivated by, I'm afraid I might be killed. I'm afraid that God might kill me and... Uh, that that the king would kill me, that God would allow the king to kill me so that he can take my wife to be his wife. And what Abraham's not falling back on is the promise that God has given him that you will bear a child within the next year. That hasn't happened yet. 
And so Abraham disconnects himself from that promise and begins to operate outside of that promise. And, and he doubts that God is going to bring him this child. Remember that God told Abraham back in chapter 18, is anything too hard for the Lord? Remember, Sarah is doubting and questioning, how can a woman of my age have a child? God responds and says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And what Abraham is saying in this situation is yes. One thing that's too hard for the Lord is for me and my wife to come into a city and me not be killed because she's so beautiful. It's too hard for God to spare my life because my wife is that beautiful. So, so, so he's doubting whether something is really too hard for God, and he's confessing and saying through his actions, yeah, I don't think God can take care of me here. Not without my help, not without me manipulating the situation. I'm going to have to help God because he is not strong enough. He is not powerful enough to save me from a pagan king. Abraham's distrust. Scripture tells us that the fear of man and the fear of God cannot coexist. Abraham is being motivated here not by a fear of God, but instead by a fear of man. In Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. That's ultimately what Abraham wants. He wants to be safe. And instead of trusting in the one that can keep him safe, he, he gives into his fear of man. And the proverb tells us that the fear of man leads to a snare. And he gets caught in the snare. He gets caught in this trap. He's scared of man, and it allows his flesh to spring up and some of his old habits and his old ways of living to flesh themselves out once again. Abraham's distrust. He doubts whether God will bring this promised child within the next year. Number two. Abraham assumes the worst of his neighbors. He assumes the worst of his neighbors. Going back to Genesis chapter 20, when he's later questioned by Abimelech, Abimelech says, what did you see? What, what was it about us that made you think, I've got to lie and manipulate this situation? Abraham responded in verse 11, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. We've already discussed, should we, should we also question Abraham, a righteous man who chooses to live, chooses to move his family into this type of environment? I see a lot of parallels between Romans chapter 1 and 2 with this passage. You'll remember in Romans 1 and 2, Paul is talking about the sins of the, the gross sinner, the one who just wants nothing to do with God. And then Paul rebukes the, the man in Romans chapter 2 that would be judgmental to those who were also guilty of the very same thing. He says, don't, don't feel spiritual pride over the fact that you are able to identify the sins in other people when you're not also identifying the exact same sins in your own life. How, 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 how is he doing that? Well, he's accusing these people of not fearing God, right? I, I looked at you guys and I felt like you don't fear God. And so I'm going to have to do some things to protect myself. And ultimately what Abraham is doing is not fearing God as well. He's not putting himself under the fear of God. He's fearing man instead of fearing God. So he's judgmental towards these people. He says, oh, these people are wicked and evil. They don't do anything with God. I'm the chosen one. I'm the promised one. I'm going to have to do something because these people are so evil, so wicked. And he assumes the worst about his neighbors. He assumes that there's no good opportunity for them to respond to this situation. The irony here is that 
these people do fear God, and Abraham acts like he doesn't. We're going to see as the story plays out that they actually do fear God. God tells them to do things, and they say, we absolutely have to do this. That this God is going to judge us. He's going to punish us. He's going to kill us. And so the people that are actually operating under the fear of God in this chapter are the pagan people, the people that aren't part of the covenant. They're the ones that actually are acting as though they fear God. Abraham is acting contrary to that. Number three, Abraham resorts to old habits. He resorts to his old habits. The, the Egypt event, we talk about it being real similar. The Egypt event occurred 25 years prior to this. Okay, so lest we read this and say, Abraham, what are you doing? Like, how did you not learn that lesson? I don't know if this happened other times. When, when you read it, when you read the arrangement that Sarah and Abraham have, um, says in uh, verse 13, When God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speculate here that this isn't the only two times that this happened where he had to lie about who she was. Maybe it is. Maybe it happened twice. And if it only happened twice, then we should probably commend Abraham more than we should judge him this morning about the two times that he messes up, 25 years apart. Think about some of the besetting sins in your own life, things that continually hang you up. For most of us, we can't confess and say, 25 years ago I did it, and then I did it again this week. Um, you know, God's still working on me. You know, most of us would say, wow, God is really... Uh, earning and, and gaining a lot of victory in my life because there's 25 years between my two sins that we're talking about. I tend to think that this happened more than just these two times, though. Um, it seems like a prior arrangement that was going to be needed constantly. And so it's very possible that they had relied on this and it had worked numerous times. Um, because I'm thinking if this only happened the other time, that it would have jogged their memory. Hey, let's don't do it again. Last time we did it, it, it turned out really bad. Uh, either way, what's happening here is, is not part of God's plan. Whether they were consistently doing it or whether it was just these two times, it's a sin that he resorts back to. It's an old habit that he hasn't yet broken. Um, ultimately, he's planning to sin, right? The arrangement was made before they were ever put in a circumstance where they needed it. This wasn't a, a situation where Abraham panics and, and resorts to sin. This is a situation where no threat, no issue, but if we ever come across this, let's plan to handle it this way. I don't know if you have a situation in your life where you're battling something where you've actually planned to put yourself in a situation to do that. Obviously, if that's the case, it needs to be repented of and it needs to be broken immediately. Part of why Abraham continues to fall into this sin is because we have no indication that he has ever led his wife and sat her back down and said, we're not going to do this anymore. We have no indication that after Egypt, they sat down and said, hey, we had that long dinner discussion that if we ever came across this, this was going to happen. We need to rethink that. What are we going to do next time this happens? We don't have any indication that he ever did that with Sarah. It seems that they continue under their old arrangement. We're going to just keep doing what we've always done, and we're going to keep falling into that sin anytime we're put into that position. And so I want you, we're going we're to get to personal 
individual besetting sins for each one of us, and it's all going to be different. We're all different, and we all struggle differently. But I do want you to start thinking, is there anything in your life currently that seems to pull you down consistently? Is it due to something that you've never gone back and broken free from? Any type of arrangement that is consistently leading you to fall into sin that really needs to be broken off at the root. That's what happened with Abraham. He and Sarah could have avoided this situation had they had a conversation that said, if we're ever put in that circumstance again, we're going to plan to handle it differently. They don't, and so the circumstance comes up again, and they handle it the exact same way. Abraham offers up his wife in order to save himself. Real similar to Lot offering his daughters up, really to save others, though. You could argue that Lot is more righteous in that Lot is obviously standing before the mob outside his house, and he's not concerned about himself being killed. He's concerned about the visitors, and so he says, take my two virgin daughters, don't take the two visitors. You could argue that Lot is more righteous in that he's thinking of others versus himself. Abraham says, take my wife, don't kill me thinking completely of himself, a completely selfish act by Abraham. Uh, Sarah's not in jeopardy. Sarah's going with, uh, with the king regardless. If she's his wife, the king kills Abraham in his mind and takes Sarah. If, if, he's her bro- if, if she's his sister, then she still goes with the king because there's nothing holding him back. So for Abraham, it's strictly motivated out of a selfish mindset to protect himself. He resorts to old habits of selfish thinking and allows himself to fall back into this old sin. It's starting to sound like this is maybe a common practice that when people immigrate into a city that it's just part of the culture to abuse them sexually. This is something that we saw in Sodom. These two visitors show up and it just seems almost like a right or a prerogative. Hey, we're going to take this person. We, we referenced this situation in Judges, something similar. These guys visit hey, we're going to take them and do whatever we want to with them. It seems as though Abraham is concerned about this happening as well for his family. We come into a new setting. It's almost like an initiation, right? You're up for grabs for anybody that might want you. And so Abraham's very concerned about the culture and how he will be handled in that culture. What's, what's, what's encouraging here, two, two aspects of encouragement here. One, Abraham is in Scripture the best example of righteous faith. I mean, he's always held up in Scripture by the writers as an example of what it looks like to have righteous faith. One who has put his faith in God and one who has been counted righteous because of that. And yet what we see here is that he is flawed and sinful and selfish, which offers encouragement to us because oftentimes we're going to put ourselves in the flawed category. A lot of us are prone to think that we're not righteous by faith, that, that we're, we're not what we need to be. So this is encouragement to us that God's best example in Scripture is also a flawed example. But there's a second aspect of encouragement here, that Abraham is not the ultimate example, and it's his righteousness that we're not relying upon. In my notes, I put, the best human example of righteous faith in Scripture is Abraham. And yet what we see here is that he offered up his bride to save his life. Thanks be to God that a better human came along to offer up his life to save his bride. And that's what we see in Ephesians chapter 5. So I want to draw your attention to that chapter. So Abraham, righteous faith, best example, best purely human example we have. And what does he do? He offers his bride up 
to save himself. And then what we find in Ephesians 5 is that another human example comes along. 25 of Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Thanks be to God that we're not reliant this morning on Abraham's righteousness. Because if we were thinking that his righteousness would get us to heaven, it certainly won't. And, And thanks be to God that he sent a better human, a better Abraham, who was willing to offer himself up to spare his bride whereas Abraham was selfish and wanted to offer his bride up to spare himself. So this is a great picture of Christ being the better Abraham here in this passage. Abraham had never really addressed the sin issue. We've already kind of talked about that. The arrangement is still in place from when they left, and it will continue to act this way until they break off the deal. Until Abraham and Sarah sit down and say, hey, we're going to stop doing this, they're going to continue to fall into sin. Uh, Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. I mean, think about this. Even if Abraham and Sarah, so Abraham and Sarah never have a conversation. Even if Abraham says, okay, I've learned my lesson. I'm not going to do that next time. The two of them come into a city. Sarah's off doing her thing. Abraham's doing his thing. Somebody approaches Sarah and says, hey, um, are you married? Is Is that your husband? Abraham's thinking, we're not going to handle this situation the same way anymore. But he never tells Sarah. Sarah thinks, oh, we're still handling it this way. Sarah says, no, that's my brother. Somebody approaches Abraham and says, hey, just talk to your sister Sarah. And he's thinking, we're right back into it again. Right? Now, now, now he's going to have to kind of go with it because now he looks bad if he says, well, she's, she's my wife. They have to have a conversation to break this off. Otherwise, they're going to continue to act sinfully until they make a decision to start handling it differently. And it's the same way with some of the sins that we struggle with. We keep falling into them because we never determine to handle the situation differently from the very beginning. We, we never break it off at the root, and so we get into that circumstance or situation again, and it's, ugh, here I am again. I'm just going to let it play out like it always does. And we haven't determined to do it differently the next time we're in that same situation. Number four, Abraham excused his actions. He doubts God's promise about the child. He assumes the worst of his neighbors. He resorts to his old habits. And then when he's confronted with his sin, he's called out for his sin by a pagan man who he, Abraham says, does not fear God. And he just comes up with excuse after excuse for why his actions were okay. He starts by saying, I didn't think you guys feared God. I felt like you'd kill me for my wife. On top of that, I didn't really lie to you. I just told you a half lie. She is sort of like my sister. And then look what he says in verse 13. When God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindest you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. So basically Abraham says, look, man, what other choice did I have? I didn't think you feared God. I was afraid you'd kill me. Um, she, she is my sister, so I didn't fully lie to you. And on top of that, God's making us wander around. So we're constantly having to deal with this. People are constantly looking at my wife, constantly wanting her. And so I had to do something. I had to come up with something to protect myself. Excuse after excuse after excuse for why he acts the way that he does. 
circumstances forced him to act this way, according to Abraham. All right, next we see Abimelech's integrity. So we see Abraham and his character in this passage. He's a guy who resorts to his old sins and makes excuses for why he acts the way that he does. Abimelech, though, stands in contrast. He's a man of integrity in this passage and one that God even acknowledges for his integrity. First of all, he's oblivious to the truth. He says, in the integrity of my heart and the innocent of my hands, I have done this. Abimelech cries out to God in this dream and says, I'm operating off of what I know, and according to what I know, I am not guilty of what you're accusing me of. And he also seems to indicate that had he known the truth, he would have avoided taking her. How do we know that? When he's talking with Abraham, look what he says. Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us, and how have I sinned against you, that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? So even in their culture, he would have viewed it as sinful to take another man's wife for himself. He says, this is a great sin. You tricked me. You, you duped me. I didn't have any idea that I was about to sleep with another man's wife. This is a great sin. Why would you put me in this situation to where I ended up doing something that I had no idea that I was doing? So we have some indication here that Abimelech may not have been as awful as Abraham wanted to assume him to be. Oh, if we go in there and we tell them that you're my wife, they're going to kill me. And Abimelech seems to say, If I'd known she was your wife, I'd have kept my hands off of her. I'd have never looked at her twice again. And so Abimelech is a man of integrity, or at least seems to be one, who says, I'm operating off of what I know. Uh, I I, I see the the truth here that she's not your wife, so I took her. And and had I known this, I wouldn't have done it. And God even commends him for it and says, "I I know you didn't know about this. That's why I stepped in to make sure you didn't commit this sin. Secondly, he ends up acting more righteous than Abraham in this setting. Abraham is called to be a blessing, right? Part of the Abrahamic covenant, I'm going to make you a blessing to other nations. This is the second time we've seen him show up with a nation and actually bring a curse upon them. He's operating the exact opposite the way that he's supposed to. Instead of showing up and saying, how can we make this place better? He's showing up and causing God to have to bring plagues and sickness upon people. He's a curse more than he is a blessing. And in contrast, Abimelech ends up being the blessing in this passage, right? He gives Abraham a bunch of stuff here at the end. And then also tells him, you can live wherever you want to in our land. And so he gives him residence status. He says, you don't have to wander around, pick a place, be there, live there, and take all this stuff and and get settled in. Abimelech ends up being more of a blessing than Abraham in this passage. I put in my notes here, it's possible for the righteous. We we know Abraham's righteous, and and we're knowing that as much as we do know that Abimelech is not, according to their standings before God, it's possible for the righteous to allow their sins to nullify their witness to the world. Let me say that again. It's possible for the righteous to allow their sins to nullify their witness to the Lord, to the world. We saw that with Lot, right? Lot tries to tell people that Sodom's about to be destroyed, and everybody laughs at him and says, are you serious? His his lack of witness. Peter says he's grieved over the sin, but his lack of vocalizing that and and living in such a way, they discount him. Think about it here. If Abraham ever wants to go back and really witness to Abimelech, he's got a lot of cleaning up to do. How does he ever try to say, put your promises in my God, he takes care of you and works good for you. 
when he acted contrary to that. And we have to be very careful that we don't allow the sins of us to nullify our witness to a lost world. We're part of Abraham's offspring. We're called to be a blessing to others. We cannot allow our sins to nullify our witness. He gives him possessions and he gives him resident status. A blessing that Abimelech gives to Abraham. He says, behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. He gives a thousand pieces of silver as a, sim- as a symbol that Sarah is still pure, that she hasn't been violated, that she still has her innocence, uh, wants to really demonstrate to those that he did not have any type of relationship with her. That's important for God's glory. It's important because she's about to get pregnant by Abraham. Gives him sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants, turns Sarah to him. So Abimelech becomes a great blessing in this passage. Um, but ultimately, we see God's preservation so you got Abraham, Abimelech, we learned some things about them, but it all comes back to God and his preservation. Uh, God remains faithful to his covenant here. Um, God, God says, I'm doing things a certain way, and even if Abraham deviates from that, I'm going to bring it back to what I've promised to do. Genesis 18, 18, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Abraham is the promised one. Abraham is the one that will, be, that will be the blessing to the nations, not Abimelech. Verse 14 in chapter 18, Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son, Abraham's son, not Abimelech's. God's preservation. He remains faithful to his covenant. And what's so encouraging is that in, um, even like in passages where 2 Timothy 2.13 When we are not faithful like we're supposed to be, God remains faithful. Abraham is not holding up what he should be doing in this part of the covenant. He's not protecting his wife. He's not making sure that he's the father of this child. But God does. God steps in and preserves his covenant. Secondly, God intervenes to save Sarah. God remains faithful to his covenant, and he intervenes to save Sarah. In both Egypt and Gerar, God saves Sarah. Remember we said early in both situations, Abraham does not come looking for the king. He does not determine, I've made a mistake, let me go save my wife. He leaves it it as is. And and if, if, if it was left up to Abraham, Sarah would have been left in Egypt with Pharaoh and would have had kids that grew up to be Pharaohs, potentially. If left to Abraham... Sarah would have become the queen of, of the Philistine people. She would have been a part of, of his royal, uh, of his royal uh, wives and, and the ladies that he brought into his realm. God steps in and God saves her. He preserves the covenant. Um, we can assume that God is powerful enough to save her without the lie. Right? If he's powerful enough to bring headache upon the king and upon the Pharaoh to spare Sarah, we can also assume that if the king had wanted to kill Abraham that he could have done the exact same thing without Abraham having to lie and manipulate the situation. It does seem that, uh, that Abimelech is, is held back by God. Um, if you skip down to the end of the chapter, then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech. Um, so up to that point, all we know is that Abimelech has a dream and God says, I kept you from committing this sin. But now we see that God had to heal Abimelech, and he also had to heal his wife and his female slaves so that they bore children, for the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah. I don't really know how long Sarah was in possession 
of the king. It seems like it was long enough for people to realize nobody's getting pregnant around here. Like if it was one night, like if, she, if he walked in and said, I want your sister to be with me, and then that very night this dream happens, and then the next day there's a prayer, nobody would have thought any wombs needed to be opened. Um, but it seems like there's some type of dysfunction here that's preventing people from getting pregnant in his realm. And it seems as though it's tied to Abimelech and some type of sickness. So God protects Sarah in a way to where Abimelech can't carry out what he wants to carry out. There's some type of sickness, some type of hindrance that keeps him from functioning the way that he wants to with all of his women. And that has to be prayed over and has to be uh, brought back into where it needs to be. And Abraham does that, which is obviously difficult because God's saying, Abraham, you're the prophet. You have to pray for Abimelech to be healed, and you have to pray for his wife to have a baby. Abraham praying for another man's wife to have a baby when all he's ever wanted is a child of his own from his wife. God kind of brings it back and says, your sin affects other people. You're going to have to pray for it. You're going to have to help fix this. Um, And so it would have been convicting for Abraham, I think, to have to pray those prayers uh, for Abimelech's household. But God intervenes in some way to make sure that Abimelech doesn't sin with Sarah. Um... God ensures that only Abraham could be the father of Isaac when he comes by doing this. Uh, so it's really cool to see God's preservation in this story. Which brings us to where I want to kind of wrap up today. Thoughts on besetting sins. Besetting sins being those sins that keep getting you. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 is where we get this concept. Um, in some translations it uses the word besetting, not in the ESV. But in Hebrews 12:1 it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight. And and most people understand that to be not necessarily sinful things, but things that would just keep us back from doing the right things. Sometimes there's good things in our life that have to be laid aside because they're simply weighing us down. Not necessarily bad, but they're being used in a non-positive way by us. So we lay aside every weight. And then the sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The sins that seem to keep tripping us up personally. It's those things that keep getting you. Um, One commentator used a personal illustration for him and it reminded me of one for me. It's similar to, um, you ever have like a, a piece of furniture or something that sticks out in such a way that it seems that you're the one that always walks by it and it catches your foot or catches your shin. On the back of our expedition, without fail, once a week, if not more, whenever I'm getting something out of the back, you have to really pull our back window up because if you just pull it and let it kind of go up, the hydraulic stops short, and the height and the size of my head and everything constantly bangs on it whenever I'm reaching in to get something. And every time I think, I'm going to learn my lesson. I'm going to do it differently next time. I'm going to pull that thing all the way up. Same, things ha- same thing happens with our printer at home. Our printer is over our washing machine. And if I leave the, the catch thing down to catch the, the papers that are printed, every time I reach in to get my laundry, boom, boom, boom. Every time and you think, I'm going to learn my lesson. I'm going to do it differently next time. I'm going to make sure that thing's closed before I go in to get my laundry because it hurts like crazy. Um, I mean, it hurts to where you want to scream it hurts so bad. That's what a besetting sin is. It's that sin that seems to constantly trip you up. It's always right there. And you, and you do it and then you leave thinking, I'm not going to do that again, and yet you find yourself falling right back into it once again. And it's particular to you. It's something that you personally struggle with. And that's what we have here for Abraham. 
Abraham has a besetting sin. It's one that continues to pop up. It's something that even if he's confessing it, he's not immune to it. There's some things that we sin and we fall into and we confess it and we turn from it and we're done with it. But based on personality, based on on context of how we were raised, there's some things, some things that we're exposed to that become such crippling habits that have to be attacked and defeated constantly. And even when we're gaining victory, we can't necessarily say done forever with that. We almost have to constantly keep our guard against it so that we don't fall back into it. So I want to give you some thoughts on besetting sins here. Abraham's besetting sin, uh, or going back, well, if you didn't see it, to trust himself rather than God when he felt pressured. All right, that, that's his besetting sin. When he feels pressure, specifically on his life and his safety, he wants to resort to trusting himself rather than God. So despite the embarrassment, despite the rebuke and the discipline that comes from the Egypt incident, Abraham falls to the same sin. Now, thankfully, we find out in Hebrews 11 that there comes a point in his life where he's no longer scared of death, and he's no longer scared that God can't overrule death. In Hebrews 11, 17 through 19, it says that he was willing to offer up Isaac, who he believed to be the promised son. Why? Because even if necessary, God was going to raise Isaac from the dead. He believed that God was, uh, was capable of overruling death. He really got to the point in his life later on where he said, Nothing is too hard for God. He had to attack that besetting sin, though, to trust himself over God when it came to pressure about life and death. Some things that I want to share with you, and we'll just walk through these real quick. Believers do sin, and sometimes they commit the same sins over and over. We are prone, for some of us, to commit some of the same sins. It has a grasp on our life, and it's something that has to be attacked in a special way. But what we see here in Abraham's account is that there are times when believers have a specific sin that continues to spring up in their life. Secondly, we need to remember that we do nothing to merit God's favor, therefore we can do nothing to demerit it either. All right? So we don't have to worry about the security of Abraham's salvation here because he's already been counted righteous, and it's not because of the things that he has done. It's because of Christ's perfect work. Okay? So his salvation is based on faith in God, not his specific righteous acts. Now, faith without works is dead. Obviously, Abraham has to produce signs and evidence through the Holy Spirit that his faith is genuine and real. But it doesn't mean that every time Abraham falls into a sin, even the same sin, that he must then be concerned about the security of his salvation. He's sealed by the Holy Spirit. He didn't do anything to merit God's favor, therefore he can do nothing to demerit it either. So we need to keep that in mind if you're thinking about a specific sin in your life that has been far more present than it should be. But number three, besetting sins can have no place in a believer's life if he or she desires maximum glory for God. We have to come to the realization we cannot be content in saying, okay, there's this one sin that keeps popping up in my life, but overall, I have a pretty good grasp on everything else in my life. I'm saying no to sin, saying no to the flesh, saying yes to God's holiness. This one keeps popping up, but overall, doing a pretty good job of, of, of pursuing Christ. We cannot be content if we desire maximum glory for God. God gets the glory in this passage, but it's in spite of Abraham versus with Abraham. Abraham's acting contrary to what he should have been doing. God has to intervene. Besetting sins can have no place in a believer's life if he or she desires maximum glory for God. Number four, 
We must always be on guard against the personal sins we struggle with the most. We don't ever get to a point in our life where we can say we've graduated from a sin problem. Even as Jesus is preparing to leave this earth, and he's spent uh, time and invested in the lives of his disciples, Matthew 26, 41, he says, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Even with all the discipleship with Jesus, he still reminds his disciples, your flesh is weak. You've got to be on guard. You've got to watch. You've got to pray lest you fall into temptation. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So we can't get to a point of spiritual pride where we think we're not subjected to old sins any longer. Number five. Our mastery of our sin is oftentimes tested by circumstances we cannot control. We can think that we have a grip on sin in our life, but oftentimes we don't fully know until we're placed into a circumstance once again where we've been prone to sin. We haven't seen a lot of distrust in Abraham as we've been working past that Egyptian scenario, but once he's thrust back into a similar circumstance, we see that evil spring back up. So a lot of times, the, the circumstances that we can't control really determine if we've really mastered that sin issue in our life. Remaining evil will be drawn out if it is there. And we have to realize we can't always control our circumstances. But we do have a responsibility to control how we react in those circumstances. Number six, we must realize that our patterns of sin lead to others experiencing the consequences. We must realize that our patterns of sin lead to others experiencing the consequences a lot of times. Think about it here. There's, there's babies that weren't being born because of Abraham's sin. Jonah, when he flees from God, the people on that ship experience difficulty because of his sin. Achan, when he takes stuff that he's not allowed to take, the army falls at Ai because of his sin. It's not uncommon to see people experiencing the consequences of other people's sins. We need to be aware of that. Maybe even more concerning than that, number seven, we must also realize that our patterns, sorry for the typo, our patterns of sin are picked up on by others. We must realize that our patterns of sin are picked up on by others because what we find is that Isaac does the exact same thing. In just a few chapters, Isaac is put in a similar situation, and he acts like dad. He acts like dad. And that's really where we can't be content with certain sins becoming a, a, just a pattern or just this is who I am. Because what we've got to realize is that people are watching us, even if we don't have kids, but especially if we have kids. kids our kids are watching us and seeing how we react and see how we handle things. Isaac sees how dad handles these type of things and, and reacts the same way when put in a similar situation. And then lastly, number eight, God always extends grace seasoned with discipline to ensure that sin, while not taken lightly, does not sever us from him. That's important here. Um, God brings discipline in this situation. And he always brings discipline in, in, in sinful situations with his children. He disciplines them like a father. He does it in such a way where the sin can't be taken lightly. So Abraham, he realizes that 
I've put people at jeopardy. They're going to die if this situation isn't fixed. So Abraham can't possibly walk away from this and say, oh, I serve a God that if I mess up in sin, it's always okay. He's always gracious to forgive me. It's true. God disciplines him in a way where he knows that he's not been severed or cut off from God. But he gives him grace in such a way where he leaves realizing sin is a heavy matter and it can't be taken lightly. So in summary, besetting sins are rooted in self-love. We said that Abraham's selfish. He's motivated by this sin because he wants to protect himself. Besetting sins are harmful to others. When we allow certain sins to continue to have a presence in our life, it will often lead to others experiencing the consequences. They're typically excused away. And this is where I want us to be careful that there is nothing in our life that's sinful that we've determined can never be taken out of our life. It's not who you are, and it's not a situation that you have to stay in. It's not something that's debilitating to you that can't be given up. We can't make excuses for allowing sin to keep a presence in our life like Abraham does. He says, what else was I supposed to do? The circumstances dictated. The only way to save myself was to come up with this. We can't fall prey to thinking that this is just how it's always going to be with me. I can't ever get rid of this sin in my life. They always dishonor God. They're rooted in self-love. They're harmful to others. They're excused away a lot of times, and they always dishonor God. Some application for us as we, as we prepare to leave. Breaking habits of sin. Some questions for you to ask. Because what we realize from Scripture is that Jesus came to destroy sin, specifically in our life. We celebrate this Christmas season. We celebrate the coming of Jesus. He came the first time to destroy the works of the devil. In 1 John 3, 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood... He himself, talking about Jesus likewise, partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, that's us. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus came to destroy sin, and he came to help us out of sin. So some questions that I think we can write down and reflect upon as we leave today. Do you know what your besetting sin would be? Can you think of anything in your life that is is very specific to you? Something that you feel like is the, the sin that clings closely to you. The sin that you're most prone to fall into. And then do others know your besetting sin? That's a sign of, of spiritual humility when you say, you know what, I know where my weaknesses are, and I feel in order to protect myself, I need to make others aware of my weaknesses to help protect me from blind spots in my area or in my life. Do others know your besetting sin? Are you avoiding circumstances that bring out your besetting sin? See, Abraham, he's the one that moves down there, right? He, he was fine for 20-plus years where he was living, kind of in the hills, Remember the the lesser of the good land? Lot took Sodom. 
He stayed up here. God blessed him and took care of him, and he thrived for 20-plus years. Reasons we don't understand, he moves, moves to a new area, puts himself in a situation where he's going to have to worry about whether his wife's going to be taken from him or not. Are you avoiding circumstances that bring out your besetting sin? And are you immediately confessing your sin rather than excusing it? Here's what I believe the difference is between a besetting sin and one who is practicing the same sin. Because Hebrews just condemns that. He says, if you, if, or First John does, if you're practicing sin, you're of the devil. And you need to potentially question your salvation. Am I really of the faith? Because I'm, I'm practicing sin. Versus an individual who is continually falling to the same sin. What's the difference? I think it falls in the area of confession. Am I, am I sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading in my life? Am I convicted of my sin? And am I confessing my sin? Or is it long periods of time where I'm practicing that sin and then I eventually get around to confessing it? And then it's long periods of time where I'm tolerating that sin in my life. Are we confessing our sin? Are we confessing that besetting sin? It, it may constantly be active in your life and you're having to fight it off constantly until Jesus comes back. But one way we do that is we make others aware of it. We avoid circumstances that would cause it to come out. And when it does come out, we confess it immediately. Abraham was subjected to a besetting sin. He lacked trust in God when it came to his wife and his own safety. And it sprung up at least twice in his life, maybe more. And part of the reason is that he never went back and resolved it with Sarah that we're going to do it differently. We're going to make some changes so that we don't continue to give ourselves to this. We need to do the same thing. We need to cut it off at the root. If we, if we have a besetting sin right now that's active in our life, cut it off at the root, determine to do things differently, make others in our life aware of it so they can help hold us accountable, avoid circumstances that would cause it to come out, and confess it. Because First John reiterates that when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Let's pray together. God, we, we praise you and thank you that even though you have set Abraham up as a great example of faith, as one that we should turn to and uh, find encouragement in because we see you working in his life and we see you growing him up in his faith, we're thankful that you also included the, the flaws of Abraham and the forgiveness that you extend to Abraham and how you continue to work through Abraham despite his sin. God, we're thankful that you do the same thing for us, that you've called us to salvation, that we've responded in faith, but that you're patient with us, realizing that our faith is a, is a growing thing, it's an ongoing thing, and there's going to be bumps and hiccups along the way where we fail to put our faith in you like we need to. And God, we know that individually there are certain sins that seem to always want to rear their head against us. And God, we know there's some sins that people in our church struggle with that we don't ever struggle with. But that there's unique things to us that we are constantly having to find victory over. God, we're thankful for accountability groups where we can confess these things and share these things and receive encouragement to fight against these things. But Father, I pray that we would be spiritually humble enough to step back and to pause and to say, what are some besetting sins in my life? Where am I prone to fall? And God, we're thankful that you have equipped us with the Holy Spirit to where we can find victory over these sins in our life. 
God, we're thankful that through confession we can experience forgiveness and restoration with you. We're thankful that you are always extending grace, but that you're not the type of father that that simply says he loves us and then overlooks our sins and never wants to deal with it. That you're a loving father and that you discipline us. And you do it in a way to where you teach us that sin cannot be taken lightly. But you do it in such a gracious way to where we know we're not severed from you forever. God, I pray that you would constantly remind us that, that our standing before you is not based on our good works. It's based on Jesus Christ's good works. But God, help us to realize that for your glory, we are now called to be people that are zealous and passionate for good works. Which means we need to be actively doing things for you, but also actively fighting against things that would defame your name. God, I pray that if there's anybody in here that has a besetting sin currently in their life that is holding them back from their pursuit of you, that they would identify the root issue, that they would identify the, the things that need to change so that when they find themselves in those circumstances where they're prone to sin, they're teaching themselves through your spirit to act differently, to respond differently, to do things differently. Help them to realize until they make that decision, they're going to continue to fall in the same way that Abraham kept falling when placed in a similar circumstance. God, we thank you that Jesus came that he offered himself up so that we could be saved and that he came to destroy the works of the devil. Help us to keep that in mind as we celebrate this Christmas season. Help us to be actively fighting against the sin in our life to align ourselves with the purposes of Jesus Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.